Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick note before we start, my folk horror novel Lost in the Garden is now out and available in all good bookshops. What if the village from Hot Fuzz started to behave like Annihilation's Area X? Three women have set off through the English countryside to track down a friend who has gone missing in the mysterious village of Almondby, the village they have been warned all through their childhood never to visit. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, don't go to Almondby. And now they too are going to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca said, eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, this is a dreamy and unsettling masterwork, one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Weselowski, Lost in the Garden is like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful, uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. And now, back to your regularly scheduled retrotube. Hello everyone, and welcome once again to another episode of Retrotube, the twice fortnightly show where my very good friend Adam and I twist each other's arms up our backs mostly because we have nothing better to do, but sometimes in order to force the other one to watch some of our favourite television shows from the 60s, 70s and 80s. After that, we have a good long chat about it, sometimes even coherently. Once again, it's my turn to pick a show, and of course, I have chosen a show which is often billed as the last of the great ITC detective shows, 1971's The Persuaders, starring my displaced twin brother, Tony Curtis, Twinning in that we have the same birthday, 58 years apart, sadly we look nothing alike. And the man with the rudest name in history, Sir Roger Moore. was mostly filmed on location between May 1970 and June 1971 and followed the adventures of two international playboys turned private investigators, Lord Brett Sinclair, a man from money so old that it probably lives in a nursing home, and Danny Wilde, a Hungarian kid from the Bronx who is now a self-made millionaire. The Persuaders isn't a straight detective drama show by any means and is full of ad-libs and perfectly timed visual humour, very often with the weekly plot being something of an afterthought at the expense of the showrunners deciding to simply wind Tony and Roger up and let them go and see what happens. But Adam, do you remember watching The Persuaders as a kid? Do you have any memories of the show whatsoever? None whatsoever. Nothing in the slightest. Wow. Do you want to think about that or...? <laughs> My initial reaction to the title when you mentioned The Persuaders, I thought, oh, that's the one with William Gaunt in it. Mm. No, that's that's The Champions. I think um, 60s bands and 60s, early 70s spy shows have a lot in common. So The Searchers, is that a band? Is that a spy show? What's going on? Both. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, yes, I was aware that once I realised that it was the Tony Curtis and Roger Moore one, I was aware that there was a Tony Curtis and Roger Moore one and I knew that they'd worked together on something. But beyond that, I knew nothing at all about it. Wow. So it was, an well, 
I don't know about a nice surprise, but it was certainly a big surprise for you. It certainly was. Can you explain the premise of the show for anyone who may not have seen it? No, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) So I've watched two episodes, um, and at the end of two episodes, I'm none the wiser as to what the premise was. I'm glad you said that they're private investigators, because they, from what I saw, they seem to be too middle-aged Lotharios Mm. obsessed by girls who just kept happening to blunder into crime plots. Yeah. Really not of their own doing. Yeah, that's basically They were just minding their own business, doing something else, and uh, poor, naive Danny, played by Tony Curtis, just seemed to bumble his his happy way into some kind of plot while Roger Moore is meanwhile um, leering over... um, girls yes. as usual yes that's basically the premise to be fair you've got it spot on mm. uh, so i'm glad at the, the intro there you said that it was a det- detective thing because i <laughs> there was no there was no without because i i deliberately did no research on it and so without any kind of um not pre-knowledge of it i could pick up nothing about the actual premise right do you, do you want me to sort of let you know what happens in the first episode so that it gives you an idea of what goes yes, on? Yes, please do, yeah. Okay. Um, in the very first episode, uh, we are introduced to Judge Fulton, who is played very in a very avuncular style by Lawrence Naismith, um, who has retired and he is very disillusioned with the whole justice system because very many times uh, innocent people are punished for not being rich enough and then the the baddies who who have corrupted everybody uh, seem to well literally get get away with murder so he comes up with a plan uh, whereby he wants to hire two people who are able to work on the fringes of the law to bring justice to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get it Uh and so he lures Danny Wilde and Brett Sinclair into a trap and then blackmails them to take on their first case and that is that is how the show started off as as the series progressed it did kind of disintegrate into this sort of free-for-all where they really weren't doing anything they were just minding their own business letching and then uh, just adventures happen to them. <laughs> it's very Scooby-Doo. It's very Scooby-Doo. The Scooby gang are essentially crime fighters, but I seem to remember they always just wander into the... They're just going on holiday. Yeah. They're just going to the fair or the circus, and they just happen to wander into some kind of labyrinthine plot involving masks <laughs> and ghosts and all that. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of that. Fortunately, there, there are fewer masks in The Persuaders. I did wonder about the title Persuaders, and I did wonder if it was referring to them persuading young women to sleep with them constantly. <laughs> I think it was kind of it was kind of more persuading baddies to not be baddies anymore. But but to be fair, your your idea is is probably more valid. So we watched two episodes. We did. Um, we watched Element of Risk and yep. Home of One's Own. Yes, that's right. So I'll try and. Uh, summarise the story of Element of Risk. So this is uh, an inversion of North by Northwest. So in North by Northwest, we have Cary Grant, who is a mistaken identity, and the criminals believe he is 
somebody who needs taking out and dealing with and he is trying to persuade them that he is not that person and they don't believe him and in this Tony Curtis is mistaken for a criminal mastermind and luckily no one at all in the gang knows what he looks like Yes. so he can get away with it so he has to persuade them that he is the criminal mastermind so that he isn't uh, disposed of yes that's that's right um, this episode is it's my favourite episode which is why I insisted we watch it but it uh, guest stars Shane Rimmer who is best known to any Super Mario Nation Jerry Anderson fan as Scott Tracy from, from Thunderbirds who is a well-known goodie so seeing him as a baddie was uh, quite a revelation for me uh mm. and incidentally for any listeners if you are new to retro tube even though we're only on episode four um and if you want to know any more about thunderbirds you can listen to episode two where i basically spend about 45 minutes waxing lyrical about it <laughs> you really do you love it <laughs> I love it so goddamn much, <laughs> which is which is why I insisted we watch this episode so that I could talk about Thunderbirds again. <laughs> we'll just go off on a we'll, I have no shame. We'll go off on a twenty-minute diversion <laughs> about Thunderbirds again, but why not? <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, exactly. We, I'm sure we will meet Shane Rimmer again in a few episodes. I am very sure we will. I'm very sure we will. So, what did you think of this episode? I thought it was great fun. Great. It was a, what should have been like a really tense, dangerous situation. So a large chunk of the episode involves Tony Curtis's character. Danny has been... Uh, he's accidentally infiltrated this gang due to mis, uh, mistaken identity and he is playing Lomax, who is this American, well-known criminal mastermind who thinks up flawless heists so the whole thing is basically an improvisation game where he has to think on his feet he has no idea who Lomax is what the plans are he has to be in this gang and explain to them so tell us about the plan he goes right okay the plan you tell me the plan and that yeah that kind of thing so it's he's sort of being very charismatic and he's just really you know he's low he's having such a fun time and I think that's what makes it joyful he really is it could be played as a real kind of Hitchcockian nail-biter but he's just having a whale of a time pretending to be Lomax and thinking on his yeah, feet. Yeah, and, and you can see that. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and he, it's just a sublime example in, if you can't blind him with science, do the other thing. Blind him with confidence and charisma. <laughs> yeah, baffle them with something. Yeah. So it's a really strong plot, I think, Um Compared to Thunderbirds, and I don't want to... I know how much you love Thunderbirds. You better hadn't. (laughs) Maybe I should change the subject. But I think think the plots in Thunderbirds were more just an excuse to watch the things happening. But this is actually a pretty strong plot. I know you said to me off-air that the things that you watch aren't really known for their plots. But actually, this is a pretty strong plot. It's a pretty strong premise for the episode it's a good framework for the things happening and so it was something that actually kept you watching rather than just it being a just a framework to have these two gentlemen pratting around <laughs> for 40, 50 minutes <laughs> the, the, there was um a, a subplot going on all all through this time in that clearly before danny had had gone off to where to wherever he'd gone and had now returned from uh, and was in Heathrow. Him and Brett had arranged a double date with a pair of twins. Mm, identical twins um, with 
identically odd haircuts. Very odd haircuts. They look like hats. Yeah, it it was uh, as much as we were saying uh, in in last week's episode about Children of the Stones that Margaret's hair hairstyle was amazing and she had beautiful hair. <laughs> this, this this is the polar yeah. opposite of that. But they did have some pretty cracking hot pants, so I don't think anybody looked that far. Oh. They did, but the haircuts were very unflattering. They were, they, they were not the best. They were not the best. Well, we start with a very familiar face. We have Tony Curtis creepily hitting on Carol Cleveland. It's lovely to see Carol Cleveland outside of a Monty Python context, which I've never seen before. I don't know if she cropped up in things regularly. She does crop up in things regularly, yeah. She's, uh, uh, I've, I've seen her in episodes of Man in a Suitcase and Randall and Hopkirk, both things we are going to revisit. I guess because she's never been in Blake Seven or Doctor Who, I've, I've not seen her outside <laughs> of Monty Python. <laughs> she wasn't in Children of the Stones. She wasn't in the Tripods. She literally only was in Monty Python. That's it. We have an incest joke to kick things off. Oh, yes. Yes. Danny gets picked up at the airport by the the girl in the uh, in, in the baddie group, uh, Charlie. And she just plants a, a giant mahoosive smooch upon him. And Brett and one of the twins is in is in the car waiting for Danny. And the, and the twin says, is that your friend? Yes, sir. Oh, that, 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 that's his sister. Oh, they seem very close. Yes, they, uh, they, they, oh, they are. The Roger Moore raised eyebrow. They're both just permanently horny. Yeah, they are. Like, uh, Danny has no idea what's going on. He's no idea why he's in that car with the blonde with the pink hat. But he's just, he's just mesmerised by the fact that he's in a car with a blonde with a pink hat and he might get some action at some point. <laughs> he doesn't really care otherwise. He, he doesn't, he does the not care. of them. And I know I'm probably like, a, a, a disgrace to to feminism at this point, but I find I find the constant Randy puppiness a to really really endearing because it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily in a sort of a like they're, they're never threatening with it or it's just oh ha huh, you're a girl great fantastic do you want to kiss um it's 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 quite sweet and quite and really quite harmless. Mm, so that combined with Tony Curtis hitting on Carol Cleveland, the show starts as it means to go on, very definitely. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of hitting on going on. I, I, have, I have a particular favourite in, in this episode, um, and she is my favourite girl in the, in the whole series, uh, and that is, that is the very lovely Sophie. Who, Margaret Nolan, yes, yes. Who who Danny meets at the club? She's just she's adorable. I love everything about her. Of course, we're both huge fans of a hard day's night. We most certainly are. And somehow she looks younger seven years later. Who was she in Hard Day's Night? Remind me. I bet you're a great swimmer. Of course she is. Yes. Paul's grandpa's friend. Yes, of course. Yes. I, do you know honestly? I'd I'd never made the connection. Um, she sadly died earlier this month. Oh no, I didn't know that. That's so sad. Yeah, I was watching Hard Day's Night the other the other week, and I decided to uh, oh, look up Margaret Nolan. She's always a welcome presence in these things. See what she's up to, and she she died four days previously. So that's really sad. Oh, what a um, shame! What a shame! I think she's an interesting looking character. I think it's a shame that she always got cast as sex kittens or that kind of role. And I think it would have been nice for her to. Have had a bit more to possibly that she, I haven't seen the things that she did have more to do. Yeah. 
Um, but there's a photo that Edgar Wright posted of, of them together. So she appears in his new film. So hopefully he's given her like a really nice final role. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. So she seemed she seemed like a nice lady. Yeah, she she certainly comes across in this episode as a very intelligent comedy actress. That a lot a lot of the the things that she does and the ways that she reacts to to what Danny's doing is it 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 takes it takes a lot of intelligence to come across as being so guileless and. She, she she is a very wholesome character, despite being portrayed as the pretty busty one who is eyeing Danny up. She's actually really sweet and wholesome mm. and thinks that everything's a, a fantastic adventure. Um, but the, the, the way that that is played is really, really well done. It probably, particularly in those days, her bustiness meant that she didn't get the really good roles and she was always... That was what they cast her for, sadly, that she would be often cast as mm. bimbo characters. But she didn't really... She she looked like she had more about her than that and it would have been, yeah, it would have been nice to have seen her as like a... cropping up as a scientist in Doctor Who or something like that or as a villain in Blake 7. I do watch more things than those two, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't don't lie to me <clears throat> anyway but also we have um in this episode we're it's an embarrassment of riches we also have peter bowles peter bowles he really was in everything he is very very tall did i ever tell you that um when i was in marrakesh a few years ago and on the way back in the airport who did i see peter bowles you've never told me this story Ah, yeah. So Peter Bowles and his wife were in Marrakesh Airport on their way back. So if I tell you, here's a little thing for you and the listeners. If I tell you that I saw Peter Bowles in a North African airport, what would spring to mind for you as to what he would be wearing? A fez. Oh, nearly. He was wearing a white suit and a Panama hat. Yes, Peter Bowles. Which is exactly how I would imagine Peter Bowles would be in North Africa. Peter Bowles stars in this episode as Harvey Lomax's number one fanboy. Doesn't he? Like, everything that Danny says, he's like, oh my God, George. <laughs> and Danny doesn't even say anything. No. <laughs> he's just like, he's just oh, the over way him. you do this, the way you say this. <laughs> uh, Danny, we love you. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, the amount of love that he has for Danny. He's playing the loveliest crime boss in the world, isn't he? I know, he's adorable. He's just like, I want him to be my crime boss. I know. <laughs> Yeah, if, if, if he's just so nice and genial, he really is. When we decide to, to turn to a life of crime, we should, you know, we should really sort of try and find a boss like that. Yeah, he he seems sweet. He does seem sweet, unlike the uh, unlike George, the guy who just wanted to shoot everybody all of the time. George is that a Carl? I have Carl Harris written down. Oh, I've written down Carl Harris. He's the only. Where have I got George from? I've got. He may have looked like a George. Um, he, the, the one that Danny keeps calling Kid because he knows it winds him up. They had a fist fight. Yes, they did. Well, I wrote down um, Carl Harris is, is the only even vaguely competent one of the gang. Yes, and he is constantly done with the fact that nobody else has a clue what's going on. No, he's like, this. I'm sure this isn't the right guy if you checked him and... Uh, Peter Bowles' character is like, oh, well, if he says he's the right guy, he's the right guy and he's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you, your passport says Danny Wilde. 
<laughs> of course, of course, it would say a different name. Only a true criminal I'm... mastermind would have a different name on their passport. <laughs> it's like the scene oh, in Life God, of Brian. <laughs> Only a true messiah would deny being the messiah. (laughs) He's not a criminal mastermind. He's a very naughty boy. But uh, he's played by an actor called William Marlowe. And while I was watching, I was like, why does he look so familiar? He looks really familiar. What do I know him from? Uh, He plays Lester. Like Seven or Doctor Who? He played Lester in Revenge of the Cybermen. Of course. (laughs) So, Doctor Who. Yes. It feels, this show in particular feels like... And you said it's like the last of the ITC adventure shows. Um, and this does feel like the crossover point between the 60s and 70s. Yes, So it you've does. got the light-hearted capers and the discotheques and the funny hair and all that kind of thing. But you've also got a really nasty villain with a gun who actually kills people. And it does, he feels like the professionals or the Sweeney creeping into this show. So he feels like the 70s is sort of like yeah. edging into the show. And although this is quite a bright and colourful show, it's not as bright and colourful and glossy as the previous ones had been. Um, so it feels like a bit of the 70s griminess is starting to creep in a tiny little bit. Um, just a just a hair, yeah. But yeah, a lot a lot of money was spent not uh, was spent on making this, and obviously Tony Curtis, I think, took uh, quite quite a, an amount. I think it ended up being because Roger Moore was so valuable after nine hundred and eighty five years of being the saint. He was so valuable to ITC. And then they got in this Hollywood star. I was going to say it's a bit. It's quite a coup having an actual proper. Ho- it must be one of the the earliest examples of a of, of a movie actor doing a regular TV show. Tony Tony was actually very proud of of the Persuaders. Um, he seems to be really loving it. He doesn't look in any way reluctant. He's having the best time of his life. Yeah, he's having a grand old time. He he really is, and he he viewed every single episode as being a mini film. Um, so he get he gave he gave it that much dedication, and he was just having just a grand old time. He had quite a big paycheck, but then they insisted that Roger Moore had the same everything that one of them had. The other one had to have exactly the same. So I think it ended it ended up getting a little bit ridiculous and out of hand. But the, I think they they played that to each other's advantage. I think it was it was quite it was quite a, a nice friendly sort of a of a thing between them. Well, actually, one of the things that I wrote down was that you can tell they genuinely like each other. They have really good chemistry. They do. They do. It's it's sort of like the anti likely lads. Yes. That. It's not. It's not just two professional actors reading lines to each other, and yeah, you know, doing the Lightly Lads did a good job of. But they, the, when you watch the Lightly Lads, they make no physical contact. They don't. Really, they're not really in each other's space much. But these two, yeah, these two lads are. Yeah, they're really close, and they lark about, and you can tell they really get on and have proper proper chemistry. Yeah, they 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 really did, and in fact, um, not too long before before Tony died, uh, there was a, a bit of a... I don't know whether they re-released The Persuaders on DVD or something, but there was a bit of a revival of The Persuaders for an anniversary. Um, and Roger Moore and Tony... Roger Moore was being interviewed on the Alan Titchmarsh show 
this is how long ago it was. Uh, and they, they brought Tony Curtis, they wheeled Tony Curtis in. It may have been the other way around, actually, now I'm thinking about it. They were interviewing one and they wheeled the other one out. And Tony Curtis did genuinely cry and was Aww. just hugging and hugging Roger Moore. How sweet. Um, and they, they just, and they just kept telling each other how much they loved each other. It was, it was adorable. It was adorable. Oh, that's really lovely. This is the 1971 equivalent of those Twitter threads where somebody gets a, a text from a wrong number and just goes along with it. Yes, that is basically that's it. That's the that's the plot in a nutshell. I'm Simon. I'm totally Simon. <laughs> There's lines in here that I like. But uh, we could just know when. Hmm. When, huh? All right, Anderson. I'll tell you when. Tell him. Oh. Well, thank you, Danny. Yes. <laughs> and instead of Peter Bowles being like, no, you tell them you're the boss, he's like, oh, my God, he's trusted me with telling them when it's going he's to so happen. He's so starstruck, yes. Oh, my God, <laughs> he loves me. <laughs> it's ador- it is adorable. <laughs> but despite it having quite a light tone, it's, it does get properly tense, and you are actually like... You're thinking, what would I do in this situation? And you, it's quite sort of on the edge of the seat. It, actually, the only part that the the Carl Harris William Marlowe character, the only bit where he's not quite so competent, is when he just kills the only person who can identify the real Lomax. Yeah, that's possibly a mistake. I would say so. I wrote down that this is a show with lots of jackets and leather gloves. So many jackets and leather gloves. Um, I, I really, really love. Danny Wilde's wardrobe in this because I think it's really uh like you can tell all the clothes are really expensive but it's also quite quite understated and, and, and neat it's not flashy in any way really um but it, and it turns out that Tony Curtis was completely in charge of his own wardrobe for this and he he insisted upon that um and decided decided at random that he'd wear gloves all the time in my mind roger moore was constantly wearing a blazer but in my mind roger moore is always constantly wearing a blazer so i can't remember if that was actually the case yeah i think he pretty much is wearing a blazer i really liked uh roger's powder blue apartment with the drums used as tables i want to live there i do too i do Mm, that's a gorgeous apartment it's very garish i love it yes yes it was i'm i'm very anti-Magnolia when it comes to walls. Yeah, same. So then we have an even more fun diversion where they go and visit the US Air Force. And everyone in the US Air Force has very long hair. Yes, they do. At this point, Shane Rimmer escapes from police custody and meets up with the rest of the gang. Plot twist. Tony Curtis and Roger Moore find out that he is the actual baddie that Tony has been impersonating the whole time. And it gets very awkward very quickly. It gets extremely awkward and they're forced to be members because they're forced to become members of the gang, which is a turn up for the books. Yes. But I by the end of it I was kind of wanting the baddies to succeed in their heist because I quite like a good heist. Yeah. I enjoy things like Ocean's Eleven and that kind of thing. So I sort of wanted them to get away with it and they weren't really as far as I remember doing anyone any harm apart from the occasional bit of murdering but that's yeah i love the line as uh peter bowles's character i can't remember his name but he recognizes brett and says sinclair are we at school together i sincerely hope not and i i laughed at that one it's quite 
quite quite a popular opinion amongst people who watch all of these ridiculous television shows uh, that the Persuaders theme tune is the, the best of all of them. Oh, really? I, it's 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 not it's not a, it's not a, an opinion I share particularly. Mm. I, I'm definitely more of a Randall and Hopkirk the Sea Girl. It's the it's the one that least gives you an idea of the tone of the show. I was thinking that it's it's very serious sounding. Very serious, very dramatic, and then as soon as the show starts, it's these two flipping idiots <laughs> bumbling, <laughs> carousing through life yeah. without a care in the world, looking at ladies' bottoms. <laughs> Pretty and then much. accidentally falling into drama. <laughs> well, before we, we go to episode two, I would just like to shout out a little tiny bit because this, this needs mentioning. Right at the very end of the episode, Roger Moore's dancing. Oh, he's looking at Lady's Bottom. Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, I remember that. I do remember it now. It is brilliant. Even just his facial expression. It would have been awful if we'd gone through this entire episode without... It, it's it's dad dancing, isn't it? All right, so now we move on to the uh, second episode that we watched. Uh, it's called A Home of One's Own. I asked you uh, if you could provide two contrasting episodes, but you did tell me that there are no contrasting Not episodes really. of The Persuaders. They're all very silly. They're all much of a muchness, which is good. Mm. So this one is... A similar thing that an excessively naive and happy Tony Curtis bumbles his way into a criminal plot, this time by buying a cottage. Yes. uh, Which just so happens to be a cover for some Satanists, which just so happens to be a cover for, uh, spoilers, international money launderers. So it's quite a similar plot. Well, it's quite a similar setup, but a very different plot. Yeah. So this is probably a little bit more of a standard runaround. It's definitely a standard sort of 60s style because the, there is always a voodoo episode or witchcraft episode of any 60s spy show. I don't know what the obsession was, but there is always one. This one is written by uh, a certain writer by the name of Terry Nation. Oh, yeah, that'll be why. If anyone knows about writing standard episodes, it's Terry Nation. Um, but this is a bit of a new thing for me because obviously I'm used to Terry Nation. He is the creator of Blake Seven. He is the creator of the Daleks. He's the creator of the, of Survivors. So we're used to him setting up and writing these very bleak, uh, often post-apocalyptic or totalitarian scenarios. His stuff, even though his background was comedy writing, and he worked with Spike Milligan as part of his team but actually his writing is generally very dry and people who know Blake Seven and uh, a lot of his Dalek episodes uh, it's a bit of a cliche and often quite a true cliche I think that his scripts were heavily rewritten by the script editor that he was a good ideas man and he came up with these ideas which were often quite similar It, it is a big thing that there are Terry tropes uh, which there actually there aren't many of here, so it's often uh, totalitarian regimes, 
it's uh, radiation poisoning, biological warfare, or some kind of plague. So he does have themes that he likes to return to. So there are surprisingly very few here, and I don't know whether the breeziness of this episode is naturally him being a comedy writer, whether he feels more at home in this environment, or whether this has also been heavily rewritten by someone else, by a script editor. I don't know enough about the background of it, but it's interesting. It's a, it, it's a Terry Nation episode, but it's just a lot of breezy fun from the man who brought us the Daleks. Yes, he he did write quite a lot of episodes of various 60s spy shows, so I do know his work from that. Um, and his, and his episodes of those are, are usually quite quite fun. I always think if I see his name come up, oh, I'm going to enjoy this one. So perhaps when when he made when he made the move to full on sci fi, he just thought, well, I've got to stop messing about and write sensibly now. Or, or not even sci fi, but possibly he just had a bit of a mental block when it came to serious drama because Blake Seven and Survivors were both intended as serious grown up adult drama, right? And even his Dalek ones could be quite grim. So he definitely had a a very dark, grim side to him, and he liked to really lay on the grimness. (laughs) And ironically, (laughs) often to the point of humourlessness. And Blake Seven is quite well known for its humour, but it's generally considered that this is Chris Boucher's work. So, yeah, so I was was, uh, pleasantly surprised how much of a, a riot this episode was. Mostly due to the fact that Danny has bought this this house, and um, when they come up the drive, because they're in the middle of having a, a row like an old married couple, <laughs> and uh, then Danny's like, "This is it," and Brett's like, "What? What is it?" And the it goes to a POV shot for Danny, and it's like this this beautiful country cottage with a little a little <laughs> fence and roses round the door and it's all absolutely gorgeous and he's sighing because it's just the most beautiful thing he's ever seen and it's actually just this ramshackle yeah. mess of a place and Brett's like what What have you done? I like how it's got like the hazy filter as if he's in love and it's he's, like it's yeah, like Davy Jones so seeing that. his latest Davy Jones seeing the like the latest pretty girl and just gets like the, lo- the heart in his eyes, eyes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is... I know it's adorable <laughs> And he tells Brett that he's going to raise cattle, chickens, girls, oh. corn, bread and whiskey. Yes. Now, that line, that line, I think, did possibly cross over beyond charming into genuinely creepy. <laughs> <laughs> when a, a middle-aged man uh, proclaims that he's going to start... F- He's going to start farming girls. <laughs> then possibly this is... The, the, possibly the police need to start getting involved. <laughs> but I, I ought to uh, rewind to the pre-title sequence, actually, otherwise uh, all the Archive TV fans will hate me forever, um, because we do briefly meet the wonderful, the lovely Michael Sheard, who is we do. Uh, a favourite amongst old TV fans. And we, we meet him very, very briefly. I wrote down, life is always better with Michael Sheard, and then immediately, boo, he's dead already. But you know, he's one of those people, like, when he's when he's in something, you just go, oh, Michael Sheard's in it. You feel a lot better about life. Just generally feel better about life. It's me. I, I wrote down that this episode provides Tony with a fantastic opportunity to do what he does best, which is loads of acrobatics and visual comedy. He he leaps over things, mainly fences. He falls down he falls downstairs. 
I'm out of downstairs cupboards. Well, I have two, I have two specific notes about this. So there is a long-running gag, or a gag that runs throughout the entire episode, which involves our two main guys and Hannah Gordon. The gate leading into the cottage is stuck, so they all always have the same method of getting across this gate each time. So... Hannah Gordon climbs over it. Yes. Tony Curtis leaps over it. And Roger Moore, he simply walks a few feet around it through a gap in the fence <laughs> like a sensible person. <laughs> but what I love about it and what is just an acting masterclass, I think, from Tony Curtis is the way he leaps over the fence every time is yes. is conveying his emotion at that moment. So he always does the same leap, but it's always subtly different Uh conveying the way he's feeling at that very moment is how he leaps over the fence it's true it's true when after he'd uh he told off the fellow with the axe for coming in saying the master won't like it uh and then he he storms out and leaps over the gate it, it's a very grumpy leap it's but then a when very he, grumpy leap but when he comes back in later feeling a bit happier about life it's uh it's 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 like little, yeah, hmm. just a, a little, a little, a little hop. <laughs> yeah. There is more jauntiness about. There's a particular highlight when basically he's walking downstairs and one of the stairs is rotten. So in most things, his foot would go through and that would be the comedy highlight there. But no, in this, he physically goes all the way through and then comes through. out the understairs cupboard. Yes. And I genuinely laughed out loud at that, just how unexpected that was. Because you, you, it's quite a cliche that your foot goes through the stairs, but his, his entire self goes all the way through the stairs. And then he comes out looking slightly peeved. All 68 inches of Curtis just went right the way through. <laughs> so it's definitely worth watching this episode just for the physical hygiene. Yeah, I think, I think so. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and also the way that he... Because he, he tiny, slight little man, but wasn't afraid of anybody uh, in this episode, despite them all being like no. <laughs> well over six feet tall. The baddie comes in and he's all, I want this cottage. Um, Danny gets up in his grill and he's like, well, you're not going to have it. Uh, it's just like, just don't mess with him. Don't mess with Danny Wilde. You're just not going to win. And I love that. Physically shoving a man twice his height with an axe, yeah. just physically shoving him out of the door. Just <laughs> like, no! Proper manhandling him. Like, I don't care. Get out of my house. Damn you. I did find it, it... It's a bit frustrating, I think, that the plot hinges on the fact that Tony refuses to sell his house and he gets some very generous offers to immediately quadruple the price of his house. So it's slightly frustrating that that's the only thing that's keeping the plot moving is it's Tony refusing to take to a vast amount of money for this awful show. Tony <laughs> just tumble down cottage. so stubborn. Like how Incredibly stubborn. A little bit later in the episode, we meet Talfrin Thomas. We do. Who's also a welcome sight. He plays a Welsh poacher. And in Survivors, he also plays a Welsh poacher, although a rather more sinister one. So he's a, another actor you see cropping up in lots of things. Tony, he's cranking up water from the well and he finds Michael Sheard's corpse in there. Yes, a bit of a shock. Uh, so I wrote down that he fainted, but I think, was he knocked unconscious by the handle? I like that a little bit less. I like the idea of him him being like a uh, Sherlock Holmes damsel <laughs> and just fainting dead away. 
Because in the next scene, Roger Moore says, oh, he's a very brave man. He's very brave. He never runs from anything. He's never, not scared by anything. Your friend won't be staying in that house long. My friend's a very determined fellow. He doesn't scare Right now, in fact, I bet he's sleeping like a baby. So it would have been hilarious if he'd had actually fainted at that and, point. And gone all Penelope pit stop. <laughs> yes. And a bit later on, um, when uh, Hannah Gordon drags him out of danger when the baddies turn up and when he's coming around she hits him incredibly hard right on the front of the head with a brick yes uh, which would have actually killed him i think in real life it's it it, it made my eyes water a little bit it's all it's all right tony's got a very thick head he'd have to she properly <laughs> socked him with a, an entire brick <laughs> on the front of the head brick. of the two of them i thought tony was the more likable yes i think I mean, they're both likeable, but I think Roger Moore's snootiness gets a bit old. I really enjoyed Danny's, just his enthusiasm for everything. Yes, he was very puppy-like. He seems like the... I mean, he he might get a bit tiring, but he seemed like the better company. Like, I, if you're going to hang out with one of them. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, after having seen all of the episodes. And, I mean, you know, me being quite an unashamed Tony Curtis fan... Anyway, notwithstanding, uh, yeah, I, I think da- I think Danny's character was just far more gregarious. I think, yeah, I think Danny was probably it was a friendly character because that is who he is. Whereas Roger Moore was charming and could and could be outgoing and friendly simply for his own ends, which is usually girl involved. He does spend a lot of his time turning his nose up at things. It makes uh, an amusing sort of Englishman cliche, but of the two of them, just uh, Danny's ridiculous enthusiasm for everything. Yes. And just this this small middle-aged man leaping about the place is, is a lot more charming and enjoyable. Absolutely. I, I think so. Uh, yes. Oh, another moment where um, it possibly crosses the line into creepy is... The bird I want to photograph today is very shy. He takes fright very easily. Well, then I can be a brain to if I have one talent, it is my ability to sneak up on birds. Yes. Yes, that, that, le- that leapt a little over the line. And when I say a little, it probably used a pole it vault. It did. The moment where they winch a, uh, a a policeman in full uniform up from the, up from the well is incredibly surreal. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but now you've said it's surreal. Like, because I... Like I say, when, whenever I watch a thing, if somebody's saying to me, this is what's happening, I'm like, oh, right, okay, this is what's happening. But now you yeah. now you said it back to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, the policeman being winched up a well, that is a bit odd. Because you're <laughs> expecting him to be winching up the body of the murder victim, and then this 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 Bobby yes. in full uniform <laughs> sitting on the bucket just arrives. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> and he's, he's just like, oh, no, nothing down there, sir. <laughs> oh, dear. I also wrote down that this is essentially the film Straw Dogs, but done as a light-hearted caper. Uh, a bit later on, when Hannah is revealed to be a detective inspector... Yes. Uh, ..the policeman who has previously winched up from the bottom of the well, he continues to call her Miss, which peeved me. Yes. This is 49 years ago, but still, I'm still <laughs> peeved by it. I expected Roger Moore to come out with a quip when she said that she's the detective inspector in the fraud squad. And I was pleasantly surprised that there was was no joke and there was no 
look of shock that oh my goodness a, a pretty woman's a detective inspector it, it was yeah there was none of that and, and i did and i did appreciate that no that is good so this episode as many of these shows are uh was in the end solved yes. by punching if you can exactly. do it why not it's pretty much how they solved every single episode and sadly, after it, it had all been going so well for two episodes, but it has a lamentable ending uh, when we end on a gag, an extremely slow and predictable gag. So the show ends with Tony Curtis having turned his cottage into a beautiful, delightful. Yes, he's done a he really had, nice job of so doing his cottage of it. up. And he's so proud it of it. Was, it was lovely. And Hannah Gordon had turned up and she looked beautiful in her dress. And, you know, it was all a lovely little party for three. And he was going to hang up this picture because he'd framed some counterfeit money to remind him of their adventures. He's got one final picture to hang up. So he very, very slowly takes the nail, puts it in the wall, hammers it in. And the entire audience are just, yeah... Yeah, it's just going to knock the wall down, isn't it? Uh, and then it knocks the wall down. Okay, it causes actually slightly more disaster than I'd expected it to. I, literally, the entire house fell down around them. It was like uh, it was like the UK release video of uh, "Pour Some Sugar on Me" by Def Leppard. Everybody watched that one. <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was the worst kind of wah 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 kind of ending. So much that really. it was. Yeah, it was. It was. A little painful. I would have loved for it to have subverted expectations and for the thing not to have happened. And it almost, like, that was the gag. Like, oh, they did just hang up a picture and it's almost like a look to camera going, oh, you're expecting the house to fall down, weren't you? But it didn't. It just did the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Oh, I, I, I do hold it against you personally. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try harder next time. But I do have a couple of questions for you, the usuals. Um, your favourite and least favourite characters this week? So normally I've done it, been doing it episode by episode, but I think... Sort of overall. I think favourite character would be Danny. Yeah, definitely. He is just so energetic and enthusiastic about everything and, and he's a doofus. He's a doofus. Roger Moore is very good, but I think he's quite passive mm. it's tony that really has the energy and he really carries the yeah, show yeah and he's energetic and very over the top but it's it, it he never does it in in an irritating kind of a way you don't get to to a stage where you think oh for mm. god's sake can you just give it a rest just for a minute can you just turn it down a notch it's just he, he plays it on such a level that you you feel as enthusiastic as he does about whatever's happening because his enthusiasm is so infectious. It's it, he he, pl he plays it on on a really endearing angle. Yes, I'm also going to have um, special mention to uh, Peter Bowles, of course, fangirling <laughs> crime boss who is just delightful as well. So much, yeah. So outside of the central characters, from the secondary characters, I'm going to give it to Peter Bowles. Yes, and whatever the name of the character was that he was playing, he was playing Peter Bowles. In terms of least favorite characters, possibly. I would award it to the identical twins hair. Yeah. Agreed. Uh your either your favourite scene or just your favourite thing about the show in general. I think what I enjoyed about it most it was fun. It was actively fun. It wasn't even just that it was a nice light watch that you could have on in the background. It was an actively fun show. But I think what I liked about it most was just 
two 50-minute episodes and it had such a high concentration of actors I really like to see in things. Um, so we had Peter Bowles and Margaret Nolan and Telfer and Thomas and Michael Sheard and Hannah Gord and, and um, possibly other people I've not written down, Carol Cleveland. So that's a really good hit rate for two 50-minute episodes of just really welcome faces. Yes, there's something uh, very cosy about seeing familiar faces in all these in, mm. in different episodes of things. Like you, uh, like you said earlier, um, it's like when you see these people on screen, you relax because you know you're going to enjoy it. So, yes, so there's a lot of exactly. that, and you can just concentrate on how much outlandish fun it is. Possibly my least favourite aspect was probably just when it was a bit top heavy with ogling and chasing girls and being a bit lascivious it was a little lascivious yes Mm. it bordered on distracting occasionally yeah and you do wish that sometimes they would think about other things perhaps and it was really nice when tony got a cottage it was so nice so nice when he got a cottage just to distract him yeah yeah but that didn't stop roger (laughs) nothing stops roger more from rogering more Out of the two episodes, which one was your favourite and why? I had more fun with A Home of One's Own, but I liked the plot and the setup of Escape to Victory. What's it called? Element of (laughs) Risk. Yeah, the the plot of Element of Risk was a lot stronger and a lot more original, and I liked the, the whole thing of him having to be on this very dangerous improvisational epi- um, improvisation exercise where he's pretending to be Lomax the crime boss. Yes. But actually, I think Home of One's Own was just more entertaining with the physical comedy. Mm. Tony Curtis repeatedly leaping over a gate was just somehow more entertaining than it should have yes, been. I agree. And the the really important question, which we always ask at the end of the episode, uh, would you choose to watch any more of it? You know, I think I probably would. Yes! Woo! <laughs> Yay! This one does edge Thunderbirds in as so much as I'm looking at real people. Well, I'm really I'm really glad. I'm delighted. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that you enjoyed it. Oh, excellent. To that extent. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for allowing me to force you into watching things. Oh, thank you for showing it to me. Thank you, everybody, once again, for listening in and for putting up with us. If you would like to get in touch with either of us, you can find us on Twitter most of the time. Uh, Our Twitter username is at retro underscore tube. We are always happy to hear from you, Um, especially if you say nice things, not going to lie. If you would like to say something more lengthy to us than a tweet, then you can always email us. Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. Please join us next week, if you can, uh, when it will be Adam's turn to share with me one of his favourite ever shows. What is it, Adam? And it really will be this time. I think this time Mm -hmm. we have to dive into Blake 7. Oh, yeah. Say goodbye, Sophie. Goodbye, Sophie. Goodbye, Sophie.